Epigenetics is just marks that are kind of put on top of the DNA, right? So either on the DNA itself or DNA is wrapped around uh, some specific proteins, which are called histones, and they can be modified as well. Fellow homo sapiens, so what happens to our brain tissue after it is removed in a surgery? Well, today we chat with a scientist who performs crucial epilepsy research using those pieces of human brain. Meet the molecular neuropathologist and PI, Katya Cabot, who explains to us in a cool, fun way her research into epigenetic alterations and the development of epilepsy. So I am a biochemistry who is working in neuropathology. So um, I'm doing research on uh, focal epilepsy mainly, and I'm trying to understand mechanisms, but I'm also trying to improve um, diagnosis of samples because it's a very subjective matter. And so I'm inventing tools a little bit or trying to find molecular biomarkers that help uh, to improve um, clinical decision-making. Just quick clarification of neuropathology to people. Do you have a quick, for those who aren't overly familiar? Yeah, so basically that's the part of pathology that only deals with the brain and nerves, maybe spinal cord, but mainly brain. So if somebody has a focal epilepsy and undergoes epilepsy surgery, for instance, uh, we get the specimen, so the brain tissue, and uh, we prepare it to then uh, do specific stainings to then look under the microscope what actually changed, you know, how the structure of the brain changed and understand a little bit what caused the epilepsy. Is that primarily where you get your samples from, from people who have had surgeries? Yes, yes. That's currently the, the main source. So we have um, here at the Institute hosted the European Epilepsy Brain Bank. So we have like over 10,000 uh, samples from epilepsy surgery uh, cases from all over Europe. And um, yeah, that's my, my research source. I'm, I'm very grateful for that. I imagine some people imagine you and your team in a lab with bits of dodgy brain tissue on a slide in front of you like saying hi this this looks lovely what what's up with this this tissue can you just give us a new, possibly a more accurate description of what you actually do with the tissue <laughs> <laughs> so when the tissue arrives um, it is either fresh from the surgery that sometimes happens because we have um, an epilepsy surgery center here um, one floor up um, but we also get samples from other epilepsy surgery centers. And then it's usually fixed in formalin, right? Because we don't want the tissue to uh, dissolve or anything. So it needs to be in a specific solution that maintains the structure. Um, so when this arrives here, uh, the block, we take a look at it. Then we cut it into smaller pieces that then will be cut into very, very thin slices, like three micrometers uh, Thin. And then you can do stainings and see really the individual cells and, and so on. So that's, um, we, we have blocks and tissue sections, which we then have stored in our archive. Do you look at all different parts of tissue that are, of t brain tissue that are removed, so different parts of the brain, different lobes or areas of lobes? Yeah, definitely. So any, any lobe. Um, and also uh, different sorts of brain lesions, right? So um, I'm interested in malformations of cortical development. Um, so if something goes wrong during brain development, uh, people develop 
like uh, structural abnormalities that uh, then cause epilepsy, or they might have a brain tumor, or they might have something like hippocampal sclerosis. So um, very specific structural changes that are frequently associated with um, epilepsy. And is that in adults as well as children and babies? Our center is um, an adult only surgery center. So that's the adult tissue that we get. But we do collaborate with a lot of um, uh, centers that are specialized for, for children. And so uh, since I'm working in malformations of cortical development, that's really the major cause of um, epilepsy, drug-resistant focal epilepsy in kids. So I have a lot of material also from, from young patients, yes. So you have just done, uh, well, there are you do lots of talks and you've just come back from, um, well, tell us about your recent talk um, in Prague and about epigenetics. What is epigenetics and how did that all go, etc.? Yeah, right. So my recent talk in Prague was on uh, epigenetic uh, mechanisms in drug-resistant epilepsy. Um, that was really exciting. Um, I'm often talking to clinicians and trying to explain to them why my work is relevant for their clinical work. Um, and yeah, it's all about epigenetics. Um, so epigenetics is basically the data management system or the bookmarking system that helps our genome to decide when which part of our genome is read. So obviously some genes need to be read during early parts of development, some needs to be read later in development. Uh, and so this switching on and off of genes um, is decided by epigenetic mechanisms. So it's everywhere, it's in every single cell, it's relevant for any disease because, you know, it's everywhere. So. It's very exciting. And um, just to clarify for people, the fact that it's called epigenetics isn't actually to anything specifically to do with epilepsy. No, not at all. Not at all. It's just uh, kind of the Greek word epi, which means above or on top. So it has nothing to do with the original uh, genetics, so with our DNA sequence. This one doesn't change. Once it's established, it's there. Um, but then still... Um, somebody needs to decide this on and off thing of, of, of uh, gene switching. And, and so uh, epigenetics is just marks that are kind of put on top of the DNA, right? So either on the DNA itself or DNA is wrapped around uh, some specific proteins, which are called histones, and they can be modified as well. And somebody of you might have heard of uh, maybe non-coding RNAs, which are also very important in regulation. So that's all part of epigenetics. So some people be, you know, think, can anybody develop epilepsy at some point in their lives? And can that be dependent upon epigenetics and can we, um, so several questions here, and can we impact epigenetics to prevent a, a seizure onset or epilepsy onset? Ooh. <laughs> I know, that's a bit that, of a mouthful, wasn't that's it? That's <laughs> a very complex question, actually. It is. Um, so um, about, you know, can anybody at any time develop epilepsy? Um, I mean, obviously I'm not a clinician, so... Um, <laughs> I say that as a disclaimer, but to my knowledge, um, there are different causes of epilepsy. Not all of them are obviously um, genetic, right? So there mm. are other types of epilepsy, as I said, structural ones. If something in the brain anatomy goes wrong, then that causes epilepsy. You can have metabolic epilepsies. You can have whatever. There are epilepsies that are also related to changes in epigenetics. 
mm-hmm. um, usually because you have a mutation in a gene that is related to the epigenetic machinery. So there is, for instance, um, uh, the CHD2 uh, epileptic encephalopathy. So CHD2 is um, a chromatin remodeler. It's a very key epigenetic enzyme, um, but nobody understands how that actually causes epilepsy. It's just this gene is disrupted. Something goes very wrong with the epigenetic system, uh, but we don't know what and how. And then for whatever reason, these kids have very severe epilepsy. Um, so there is a connection but it's not like anybody at any time just, you know, gets a change in epigenetics and then they will develop an epilepsy. It's not like that. Um, I rather investigate the epigenetics as a marker of the epilepsy that is going on, like like a proxy for what is going on. Um, and I will, I try to use this uh, to help, you know, making a diagnosis of a patient. And maybe at some point there will also be a chance for treatment. But this is like really, really far away because, as I said, epigenetics is in every single cell. If you mess around with epigenetics, you can screw up a lot of things. So it's um, it's difficult. What projects are you managing at the moment? Tell us about this. Okay, so my main project is um, or has been for a long time um, that uh, I'm looking into one specific epigenetic uh, modification. It's called DNA methylation. Um, so it's a direct modification of DNA. Um, so little methyl groups are added. And this is uh, something that turns genes on and off. Um, but it's also like a, like a molecular diary, let's say. So a cell can remember what it has experienced and it does it by writing these epigenetic marks. So what I'm currently using, like with this concept in my head, I'm just trying to find signatures that the cell has created as part of their molecular memory, which says, okay, I'm a cell that is part of an epileptic brain. I'm a cell that is part of a specific lesion type, let's say hippocampal sclerosis, uh, and maybe even which subtype. Um, There might also be some information hidden, which I have not yet discovered, that will tell me, you know, I do respond to these drugs or I don't respond to these drugs. And, you know, like this type of thing, I try to understand. Uh, So we call that biomarkers, um, diagnostic biomarkers, but also prognostic biomarkers, which help us understand um, what the patient um, responds to or may respond to in the future. And and, yeah. Yeah. That's kind of what I'm doing. So say you get some tissue from um, an adult from the hospital and you are able to dissect it as you described before and and check out the dodgy bits, the not so dodgy bits or what may have been the um, underlying cause of the development of the epilepsy. Can that, will that be communicated back to the patient's um, clinician, their neurologist? to as potentially to impact their treatment post-surgery? Currently, um, the clinical practice is that if we get the tissue and we do the histological workup, so we try to prepare the tissue in a way that we can look at it under the microscope, uh, and then we see what has changed, right? So we know how normal anatomy in the brain looks like, and now we see that something's wrong with the anatomy. And all of these different changes have a specific name. So if we are a very experienced uh, epilepsy center, we are um, uh, epilepsy uh, reference center for, for diagnosing, um, like on a neuropathological level, um, epilepsy-associated lesions. So 
we know the entire spectrum. We are also involved in all these classifications that the ILAE develops uh, for, for diagnosis. Um, so uh, this information is reported back to the clinician, of course, uh, to the neurologist, for instance, because we know that the type of lesion is the best or most important predictor of post-surgical outcome also. So if they want to make a decision on whether they will stop medication or not stop medication, they have to kind of consider what was the lesion and, and what the prognosis is based on that uh, information. What we currently don't do, because it's still experimental, uh, is using these molecular, like these epigenetic marks, um, and incorporate that into clinical decision-making. It's something where I want to move, but I'm still not there. What sort of timescale are we looking at? Because loads, loads of us, especially those of us unfamiliar with um, the sciences, neurosciences and epigenetics and everything to do with brain and medicine, basically, we, of course, we, we want uh, discoveries now and decisions now. I, I totally understand. I totally understand. But of course, what you don't want is something that I promise you something big, you know, that's going to work and then it's not going to work. Exactly. So uh, it would it would kill everything if we introduce things into the clinic too soon um, and then you know, if it goes wrong, then then everything is just, um, yeah, uh, will be <laughs> coming to an end very soon, you know. So uh, what we are trying to do is uh, we have promising results for these molecular diagnostic biomarkers. I found them in the brain. I'm currently investigating them in the blood because obviously we want to get information before surgery, not after surgery. That would be even more cool. Um, I'm also checking whether these epigenetic changes occur in people with uh, genetically driven epilepsies, right? Because also their journey is very long sometimes until their genetic um, cause of their epilepsy is found, right? Um, and also that might impact then decision-making in terms of what kind of therapies they get. So my vision is that um, I will create a tool based on these molecular biomarkers um, that can be like a simple blood test and just help the clinician say, oh, okay, so from a DNA methylation standpoint of view, this seems to be this type of epilepsy with this particular genetics or with this particular lesion. So we should do this, that, and maybe, you know, go into surgery, go not into surgery or try that particular treatment. That's, but that's a long vision. I cannot even say that it's going to happen in one year. Like I, it's currently about collecting samples and analyzing them. And just because I have promising result in, let's say 100 patients currently, um, doesn't mat uh, mean that it's going to work in if I test 10,000 samples, right? So I first have to collect these numbers, prove that I'm like on the right track. And then hopefully at the same time, we will also make some technical advances to really be able to put that onto, let's say, a small chip that then can be used for, for a blood test. So basically, we don't want to do a, uh, a Theranos, if you like. Do you know, do you know about the Theranos? Um, <laughs> No. Oh, no. okay. So no. there, for anybody who's not familiar, there's this uh, infamous uh, human called Elizabeth Holmes, who has uh, just been put into prison, finally. Um, she set up an organisation, oh, gosh, about 15 years ago or something like this, that's like that, called Theranos, where she um, was going to have a little machine um, which would take a drop of blood from one's finger and from that diagnose hundreds of diseases. And all it needs is a drop of blood. And it was a complete 
lie. Uh, <laughs> no, we don't want to do that. <laughs> so Exactly. It was worth $9 billion at one point. Nine billion dollars. And then they were like, oh, oh, okay, yeah, this doesn't work. Never, you know, will work in the foreseeable future. So we're not doing a Theranos, basically. No, hopefully not. <laughs> <laughs> like I'm a scientist, of course, is getting excited about their own results. And sometimes we get a little bit carried away with our visions. Uh, that might be, but um, actually I'm questioning everything I'm doing uh, regularly and, and, you know, redo the same analysis over and over again and with different methods and see whether I still get the same results. So, um, and yeah, obviously I'm checking myself twice and triple and everything by uh, trying different samples, different patients, you know, making sure that not just because it's samples from, let's say, my own center and only uh, uh, processed through one particular pipeline, that then it's not going to work if we do it in UK or if we do it in the US, you know. So um, I want to make sure that what I'm doing is really um, true and sustainable and applicable in, in hopefully all parts of the world, at least uh, the ones that have the, the technology available. Kind of essential in a scientist here. Check, recheck, recheck. Be open to contradiction and like, oh, oh my God. Like, yeah. And, you know, health is kind of important and the brain is kind of like you were saying, kind of important. So there's no room for error, basically. Yeah, exactly. And we're so fragile. Like, I imagine if you could just make one tiny little mistake, it could mess up. Well, potentially mess up everything. Yeah, that's true. But this is what I'm saying. So, um, if people dream of, for instance, uh, using epigenetics because it's um, by nature a reversible system that kind of holds the promise and hope that, you know, if something goes wrong in one direction with the disease, if we turn it back, the whole system, then we get back to a normal state and then we, you know, cure the patient in theory. But as I said, because it's in every single cell and because it's not just going in one direction, like there's not just one change going in one particular direction, but this whole system is so complex. Um, you don't want to mess around with that. And currently we don't have any treatments that would be really directing an epigenetic treatment to a specific part of the brain, to a specific cell type, maybe even to a specific gene. So we are not there yet. Until we solve these three issues, we cannot talk about epigenetic treatment in epilepsy. And I'm fully aware of that. So my current step is just focused on the diagnostic and kind of patient um, stratification aspect. And maybe if in the meantime, something else develops in the therapeutic direction, um, I'm, I'm happy also to follow up on that. But um, currently it's more the first step and i think this is a perfect example of the um of the importance of educating the wider public about the complexities um of, of uh, epilepsy research and, and the sciences and and explain to people like this is why it takes so much time it's this complex um this is why it takes the money it does this is why we need more funding for our um projects um, but also this is why it's so worthwhile, um, you know, so worthwhile. I, I find it very, very 
exciting. I told you about my fascination with the brain as the most complex organ. So yeah, definitely it's difficult. You know, if anybody who does research on the brain, you know, they have just chosen the most difficult part like, of well it done. all. Um, <laughs> yeah. Then, yes, very smart. Um, <laughs> then, of course, uh, as you know, I don't have to explain you uh, that uh, there's not one epilepsy but the epilepsy so just as diverse and 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 you know uh versatile our brain is the that complex are the epilepsies so um there's not one mechanism for all of them and i appreciate like i understand that and i try to to uh, recognize or memorize that every time when i start diving into something i'll just say you know it's something very specific in one particular patient group it's not going to be applicable easily to to every epilepsy patient so we have to live with these limitations and um yeah this is why it takes so long it's very complex that is worth it and now i want to say to everybody make sure you check out this ultra cool website which launched a couple of weeks ago (laughs) of catches yeah cobolab.org it's lush it's really good it's nice and clean straightforward not too much stuff everywhere i really like it not that i'm judgmental of websites but i really like it (laughs) um um, now this is wonderful stuff well thank you so much for joining us we're going to be following you very closely in all the talks you do and and your website updates and everything um and if anybody would um well like to learn more about you i guess there's your website and you're on social media as well right if they want to reach out yeah they can always contact me so it's like um i'm i'm happy to hear from people it's brilliant to hear of the crucial role of a molecular neuropathologist and even better to have a star like catcher specializing in the epilepsies doing research for us and spreading the word amongst other researchers and clinicians. So a huge thank you to Katja for her work. If you'd like to connect, you can find me on Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook or Instagram. And I'd love to hear from you if you have any thoughts about today's show. Please subscribe to Epilepsy Sparks Insights on your podcast app so that you will never miss the weekly episode. I'm Tori Robinson. Thanks for listening. <laughs>